Please turn to your Bibles uh, to Psalm 119. And we're going to stand here in a moment. But, but I want to let you know, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. But our focus today is going to be on verses 5 through 8. You might remember a couple weeks ago I preached on verses 1 through 4. And, and it's important that we hear in this, this text There's an important literary shift that happens, particularly between verses 4 and 5. And so I want you to look for it, and children, I want you to listen for it as we read this together. So please stand for the reading of God's holy and sacred word. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn of your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Holy Spirit of God, illuminate our minds and hearts now with your powerful word. Mold us, shape us, transform us, and save us. Amen. You may be seated. The psalmist, in verses 1 through 4, has just set before us the truth, hasn't he? What it is for man to be universally blessed. They walk in his ways. They do no iniquity. They keep the precepts of God diligently. They seek him with the whole heart. Then in in verse 5, in a very personal way, having declared what it is to be blessed, to walk in the law of the Lord, the psalmist is now gripped with the renewed fear of God as he considers his own way, realizing he has come short. He changes his writing now, you see, to the first person, and he cries out to God, that he would keep his statutes so that he would not be forsaken by God as one who walks according to his own ways. And then he resolutely determines that he will keep God's statutes. But he knows he can only keep God's commandments by divine grace. And for him, that means turning from following his own way self-renouncing his own path and keeping and clinging to a resolved, unwavering, fervent trust in God. This is a very personal and corporate reality we all know. God has saved us. He's handed us the truth of life. And in doing so, he's called us to trust in Him, to keep His law. 
But don't each of us know the pull and the tug to go our own way? The temptation to give in to sin. The inclination to listen to lies. Doubting God. The passions of the flesh. Even fake smiles to please man. We know the way of natural man. But praise be to God, this is not the way for us. For His divine power has given to us all things for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by His grace and virtue by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. With that introduction, let us now look at verses 5 through 8 and the two petitions and the two resolutions that the psalmist declares here today. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. This is a regrettable cry of self-examination. Have you ever thought back in life and thought, when I did that, I I was going my own way. I, I, I wasn't right there with God. I did my own thing. I wanted my path. And the result As you look back, you know it was not only dishonoring to God, but it was pretty destructive to your life at that moment too. But in looking back, in God, there's always a looking ahead. Amen? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to that which is ahead. So regret in Christ becomes hope. If my ways are directed to keep your statutes. Oh, what then? What are the possibilities? And then the realization that it's not an impossibility because this is our position in redemption. This is our place in Christ. That's our God making all things new by His grace. And while we know that we are alive together with Christ, we still feel that tug off the path of righteousness. We know we need to be constantly guided by our God. Calvin said it this way, although God is plainly instructing us in His law, the obtuseness of our understanding and the perversity of our hearts constantly need the direction of the Spirit. It's His Spirit, His truth, statutes that are constantly guiding us that we may be steadfast and established in keeping God's ways. Do we keep, do we treasure God's way so that we are steady and stable and grounded? This is the way for God's children, a steadfastness in the Lord, which is only possible by faith. By trusting in God to keep steady and not shifting to and fro. 
You might remember the words of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the Christian is not hurried or worried or flurried. Instead, there is a keeping with God's statutes. There is an even tenor about His way, which is born out of a solid grounding and trusting in God. Walking steadily towards heaven, not in perplexity, not in anxious toil. For the Christian has his rule of God by which he follows. Trusting and resting in God brings a peace, brings a calm, brings still waters. It's like a ship sailing on the sea. It's not thrown about to and fro by hasty decisions, foolish reactions. It's not giving in to winds of untruth that push your sails into dangerous waters of doubt. No, its course is set. It's smooth sailing in God's way. So this is the question that the text demands of us. Is your walk steady? Is it consistent? Is it grounded? For that's what we're called to. In Christ, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that's the key, isn't it? Are we looking to God to chart our path? Have we set the word before our feet as a lamp to see what the next step should be? Keeping His statutes ushers us into a freedom, a peace and a joy that's echoed here in verse 6. Let's look. Again, verse 5, that my ways, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then verse 6, then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. When God's people depart from his ways, it's a shameful thing. You could read about it in the news. We know this. You can see it in church history. It's a shameful thing. It's paralyzing. And maybe it's happened in your own life. A depressing spirit shouts, you failed, you're no good, you can never glorify God. But this lying spirit must be recognized as what we're told in 2 Corinthians 5. It has exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and so therefore it must be brought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. For there's freedom from shame by looking to God's commandments. For your life, when aligned and walking in God's truth, leads to peace and glorifying God. Frederick Marchant said this well. He said, turning to the Ten Commandments now, the honest man feels no shame as he gazes at the eighth. The pure man is free from reproach as he reads the seventh. And he who is reverent and hates blasphemy is not rebuked by the thought that he has violated the third. 
Do you feel ashamed when you read God's commandments? If so, that's the righteous conviction of the Holy Spirit directing you to hope. That today, by looking at His commandments, by turning to His law, keeping your eyes fixed on them, you will not be ashamed. Of course, this is the same declaration Paul made in Romans 1, isn't it? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For this is what the gospel does. In it, we cast off our self-righteousness. We let go of our grip on life, and by faith and by freedom in the Spirit of God, we trust in God, and then we walk in His ways unashamedly. Second observation is the comprehensiveness of the call in verse 6. If you look at it there, when I look into all your commandments. The psalmist is declaring that part of his shamedness might be because he's only had a partial obedience of God's ways. He recognized that all, all of God's commandments are equally binding upon him. This is the thoughtfulness of a godly man and woman. Have I kept just some of God's law? Or have I willingly neglected and even ignored some of them to accommodate my preferences and passions? If we were to say, let's say we found a child in here and we said, you know, this is a very obedient child, right? Well, you couldn't say that child also just picks and chooses which of his parents' rules he obeys. No, that child would be deemed obedient because they obey their parents in an entirety. There's not a a willingness about it on their own passions, but there is a submission and obedience to it. Looking to all, obey all His commandments, is a submitting to Him in everything. When you're playing a sport, anybody played a sport? You can't just pick the rules you want to obey and ignore the ones you don't like. That wouldn't work. You have to keep all the rules, right? For the integrity and purity of the game. It's, it doesn't even become a, a sport anymore if you just pick and choose in that way. And oh, how much more with the eternal truth of God. We cannot pick and choose For the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, Psalm 19 says. Then because God loves us, He will clearly point out in our lives that one commandment that we want to ignore, won't He? Because He loves us, and He'll root it out for our good and for His glory. Remember, remember this, the one commandment that trips you up in life. God's Word is replete in showing us the importance of that. Remember Saul in 1 Samuel 15. He killed all the Amalekites except for one. And that one exception in his obedience cost him the loss of his throne and dishonor to God. Or in Mark 9, 
Remember, Jesus is telling us how to seriously deal, deal with sin. And he says it's the one corrupt, unmortified member that casts the whole body into hell. We have to be honest when we're looking at God's commandments. Do we look to all of them or do we conveniently overlook some? Because you cannot separate out the law of God. That's the work of liberal Christianity. We will take this portion of the Bible, we'll excise this, and then we'll take that portion. May we not do that in our own lives, brothers and sisters. As James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So be transparent, be genuine with yourself and your self-examination. Am I setting aside or overlooking a precept of God because I don't like it? Be humbled when you don't render perfect obedience to God. But make sure by faith you desire and purpose and strive to follow all His commandments. Having your eyes fixed upon Him, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. If you're going to hold on tight and keep something in this life, May it be God's truth. Because we must recognize the truth of God as life due to His grace. And this is the conclusion of Solomon, the wisest man ever. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. And this is a serious matter. I think we have to stop and take a moment and consider when we read the Apostles' Creed from centuries ago, when we hold this book in our hand, it's a serious matter. There, for those of you with the notes, there's a picture of William Tyndale. He's pointing to what he gave his life to. He went and hide, he had to hide the last 12 years of his life because he was being chased down to be martyred. He eventually was martyred. And so were many of his followers. You know, some of his followers, some of the parents, they were seven families, parents, were murdered. They were martyred because they taught their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Tyndale translated the whole New Testament and about, about half of the Old Testament into English, opening the Word of God to God's people. And because of that sacrifice, in part, look what we have today. We have multiple Bibles in our home, Bibles on the internet, on your phone. So this, it's not, just an, it's not just a good idea to consider. This is a serious matter. That people have died for this. So treasure it, keep it, that you may not be ashamed. Lean in with bold faith and recognize the sober nature of the truth of God. Now, with this faithful consideration, this drives the psalmist now in verse 7 to take a stance, to determine, to purpose in his heart that he will look to God and worship Him. Verse 7, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. We must begin our resolve to walk in God's ways by loving Him. Jesus said, if you truly love me, 
you will obey my commands. Therefore, we should not attempt to keep God's law diligently unless it flows out of a love for Him, a gratefulness that, that sort of bleeds to want to worship Him. I will praise God with an uprightness of heart when I learn of your righteous judgments. So here we see a bit of a cause and effect, don't we? When I know your law, Lord, then I'll be able to praise you. For when I understand your goodness, when I learn of your righteousness, then I am able to praise you and to glorify you and to walk with you. And this is the same approach we see in faith in the gospel, isn't it? You cannot praise God and rightly love Him unless you know Him, unless you receive Him, unless you understand Him. And in a very simplistic form, we all know this. Right? If you walk up to a stranger in Elizabeth, you, you can only love them so well. You don't really know them. But if you know someone, you have a relationship with them, you've walked with them for many years, you know how to love them better. And so how much more it is with our God to whom we owe our life. Now, if you find yourself not inclined to praise God, if you find yourself not enjoying or celebrating the joy of your salvation, not genuinely in uprightness of heart by faith resting in Him, then seek to know Him better. Learn of His righteous judgments. Study Him. Commune with Him. Know Him. And then, as the psalmist said, you will be able to praise Him. It's the same declaration of Paul in Philippians. And there on your notes, Paul reaching, striving, pressing towards the goal was to be to be gained in Christ, to, to find Christ, to know Christ, to share in Christ, to love in Christ. Praise of our God flows out of the abundance of what our hearts have learned of His righteous judgments. Has God been merciful to you? Has God blessed you? Has God given you something you don't deserve? Even one time. It's so much, isn't it? You can see how David said, my cup overflows. Because this is our position. It's in Christ and it's only in Christ. And it's all in Christ from which we live. This is how we please God, by sincerely learning Him and His ways. His statutes, His precepts. And by that, you are transformed. You are renovated. You are sanctified by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of our God. This learning, of course, is not just an academic study, is it? It's not like studying old English history. No, it's practicing the law and then living it out in faith, right? I mean, it would be one thing to read a book and, and learn on paper how to shoot an AR-15. But oh, what a very different thing to pick one up and to charge that weapon 
and then to feel the kick and the smell of the gunpowder and the sound without hearing protection on. How different than reading the paper on it, isn't it? So it is as we walk with our God. You may read about it, amen, but then live it. Walk it. Charge that weapon and see your God at work. Children, let's take a simple example from Colossians 3. Colossians 3, children, listen, says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. So, You're getting ready to go out to an event that you're excited about and little brother or sister takes a little bit longer than you would like to get ready. And you end up being late for the event. And your inclination is to get quite frustrated. But here you can see what God tells you. You've read it now. You are the elect of God. You are set apart to live for God. You're free from self. You can, with a grateful heart, bear with your little sibling. You can bear with him in love. You've read it. Now live it. Go do it. And practice it for God. And for us adults, one of the hardest things we struggle with is Matthew 18, isn't it? Just be honest. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We read it, we know it, but when that time and moment comes, do we do it? Brothers and sisters, the point is, we will be challenged to rightly praise our God with uprightness of heart. And unless we learn and carry and live out his righteous judgments, which are best for us, We cannot. Jesus spoke of this principle directly. Knowing God is living and walking with him. Jesus said in John 6, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned of the Father comes to me. Heard and learned. Learning and living is what renews our mind to Christ. It illuminates our soul with the right view of situations And the right view of when we're offended and hurt, it will frame our hearts according to the law of God. Knowing His law and His commandments and testimonies will do us no good unless we practice them. I I say this about the Spanish language a lot. Uh, When I graduated from high school about 30 years ago, I was fluent in Spanish. I was. I could read novels. I could write papers. I could pick up on any conversation, but you know what? Right after high school, I never spoke it again, and I can barely follow a conversation now. Use it or lose it. So it is with God's precepts. May we engage in them. May we engage in what God's given us. This is the picture of the godly man and woman, one who pours over his word, who studies it, who learns it, who listens, who reads, and then the acknowledgement of obedience flows out. 
that we may know God more. Now, I know we speak of this a lot, but I I challenge you to really examine your life and ask, do I strive to know God more? Am I pressing ahead, reaching forward, as Paul said, to do all that I can to know him more and more, studying his word, listening to it, soaking it up? Know God foremost, and you'll be able to praise him with uprightness of heart. Spurgeon, in speaking of this, said it this way, we learn to know. We know so that we might remember. We remember so that we might believe. We believe that we might delight, and delighting that we may admire. Admiring God that we might adore Him. Adoring Him that we may practice and live it out, and living it out that we may continue in the way of God's statutes. It is a glorious and wonderful thing to learn and know about our God. May this be our chief end, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Now, building on that faith-filled confidence, the psalmist then, in verse 8, resolves himself to a stance, a position, and then pleads for God's grace in verse 8. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. This is a declaration. This is a commitment. It's a decision, a, a driven will. Right? We see this in Scripture, like Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a statement of faith. Like Luther. I cannot, I will not recant. Here I stand, I can do no other, so God help me. And it's you, Christian, in your moment of decision. I can go this way, or I can stand With Christ, I can walk in the way of my God. The psalmist says, I will keep your statutes. This is a strong statement. And and you can sense it's it's said with a holy fear, with with an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, declaring, I have learned of you. I will keep your statutes. Keep me in your grip, God. And then he goes on to say, oh, do not forsake me utterly. See, the first part of the verse is a declarative, resolved faith, a commitment to keep God's word. But then there's a noticeable literary shift again, isn't there? So we see this simple obedience combined with faithful trust. In the first part of verse 8, the psalmist is firm in his purpose focused on God's commandment, resolved to keep God's ways. And then, as soon as he says it, he realizes he is distrustful in his own strength. He's conscious conscious of his own weakness. He's aware of his dependency upon God. And having learned the importance of self-renouncing and self-denial, He now knows that he may fail. So he cries out, Oh God, do not utterly forsake me. I am powerless without you. 
to follow your way. So do not let me go, God. I can't do this without you. Do not forsake me. Are we faithful and humble enough to learn with our whole lives to live for God and to lean into that and strive for that and press towards the goal with all of our strength and at the same time be utterly dependent upon Him to do so? It's both, isn't it? In the keeping of His commandments, we must always be on guard for self-confidence and pride. Take heed, yes, lest ye fall. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. God reiterates this through His truth. If you lean upon the arm of the flesh, what's the result? Stumbling and frustration, usually. But if you lean upon the arm of the Almighty, you advance and you feel and know and receive His grace. Well, let's conclude this verse by taking a look at what the psalmist says. And what does he mean by saying, do not utterly forsake me? Do you you see that? Because does God forsake us? What is the psalmist talking about? I mean, isn't the doctrine of the perseverance of saints true? Isn't it true that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hands? Aren't the words of Psalm 121 true? The Lord will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going in. You're going out from this time forevermore. Isn't it true? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So what is this prayer for God to not utterly forsake me? Well, perhaps you've been through a difficult trial a lonely season in life where it even seems and you wonder, is God here? Is God with me? Does He hear my prayers? I'm praying. And so at times you may feel forsaken. And you question, is it me? Is it because of them? Is it because of the church? Maybe it's God. Where do I cast this blame? God, are you hearing me? But does God really forsake us and leave us forever? No. No. And not only does God promise He will never leave us or forsake us, but He promises time and time again in His Word that He will always be with us. So God never forsakes us But it might seem that way to us. It's a danger to think that the Lord could forsake us. Rather, in those times, we should ask ourselves, are we in a down state due to our sin? Are we faithlessly responding to an offense? Are we confused and perplexed by lies of the enemy and the circumstances? Are we fearful? and not operating in a sound mind. 
So we cry out to God as the psalmist did and as Job did. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And we cry out to God, Oh God, don't let me go. Do not forsake me. Because I can only trust in your statutes when you hold me up. As David said, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. As as Charles Bridges says, these are the times when we know our weakness. And those moments are the very handposts that show us that we are in the way of his own promised leading. It's a painful exercise, but a faithful keeping and an eternal salvation. Though my comfort is clouded, my hope remains unchanging. And so we pray, humbly, meekly, we call out to God for his mercy. So this is a remarkable verse that concludes our time. And we must ask, what is the call for us? Well, we see it's an important step of faith to come to a resolution for your path for godliness. I will keep your statutes. Secondly, we resolve that on our path of obedience, it will require us to run to God for help, won't it? We cannot do it without Him. And thirdly, Although we rush to God, there are times when it seems as He is absent because our eyes have drifted from Him and we're caught up in the pain. And so, fourthly, we must, as the psalmist, cry out to Him that He will preserve us, sustain us, carry us, and enable us by faith to go to the next day and the next day by grace. In conclusion, as we consider, again, Psalm 119, we are left personally to intently think about the words and apply them to our lives. Knowing you've been entrusted with such exceedingly great and precious promises, with the truth of all eternity, having been raised to life with Christ, do you cry out like the psalmist? And seek the Lord for mercy, that you may walk in His ways and keep His statutes. Are you learned and practiced in His truth, so that you may praise Him with a pure heart, no longer ashamed, but rejoicing in His law? Not wavering, not unstable, but confident and steadfast in the Lord, uncompromising in hope, unflinching in faith unshakable when the trials come, unwavering in belief, and unyielding in your commitment to God. Standing on the promises, what are you standing on today? Are you standing on the promises that cannot fail? When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail standing on the promises of God. This is the self-renouncing faith of keeping God's commandments. May we be aware 
and on guard for our weakness, our danger of drifting from God. We must know and walk confidently in who we are in Christ and trust in His redeeming power. And as we read in 2 Peter 1, be settled in His rescuing work of your soul as a partaker of the divine grace. Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure, for you are not alone. In fact, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that He ordained before time began, that we should walk in them. In a moment, we're going to sing Psalm 119, which is fitting. But the words here reflect the same truth that we've just heard. I want to read verse 4 that we're going to sing. O God, let your ordinances help me. Sounds like the psalmist in verse 8, doesn't it? For with them my soul shall live and praise thee yet. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Oh, save me, Lord, for I will never forget your commands. May this be the confident cry of our hearts today. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your statutes and your precepts, your commands and your law and your truth that guides us and leads us. Oh God, may we, as the psalmist declared, know our weakness and our failing and renounce our self-confidence and instead lean into you and be unshakable in our hope and our faith and our trust in you alone to walk in your ways and keep your statutes. Oh God, be with us now as we walk today and tomorrow and the next day looking to you, keeping our eyes fixed upon you and trusting in the redeeming power of Christ. Amen.